0: This is The Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com I'm joined here with uh, Mike Anisimov. Uh, he's a futurist uh, and political writer. Uh, Mike, it's great speaking with you.
1: Great speaking to you, Robert.
0: So to start things off, uh, you have a background in tech. Uh, you worked with the Singularity Institute, and uh, can you give us some background information, uh, the publications you've written for, and how you became interested in futurist, uh in political topics including AI and transhumanism.
1: All right, so way back around like 2001, I um, read uh, a short article called What is Friendly AI that was on KurzweilAI.net, which is Ray Kurzweil's website. Also around the same time, like, um, I read The Age of Spiritual Machines when I was a teenager. So also I read um, Engines of Creation by uh, Eric Drexler about nanotechnology when I was also a teenager, so at that time, I got fascinated by um, just the futurist and transhumanist scene, and I was one of the early people that was involved in it, and um, but mostly, for the most part, I just wrote this blog, Accelerating Future, that was extremely popular for a while, and at one point, it was in the top 10 tech blogs, and uh, I just wrote about, um, like, transhumanist issues and risk issues, and just the AI singularity stuff, and um, I think I contributed one chapter to a textbook more recently, but in general, my book writing only began around 2015 or so, when I wrote a couple books, and uh, I got into politics through um, people around the Singularity Institute who were reading um, Curtis's blog, Curtis Yarvin. So basically
0: the Neo Reaction Sphere?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's just why how I got into politics, and also just because of um, like reading, interest in history for the most part. Like I just I always read a lot of stuff here and there, and I wasn't super politically um, like charged up really because I was just a centrist Democrat for many years. And then by reading um, Curtis's stuff and also just reading history, I changed my political views, and I became. I guess, uh, like an anti-Democrat activist, I guess you could say, like against democracy, and I've been like that uh, since, I've been writing about that openly since around 2012 or so, so it's been almost a decade now.
0: And you're from white Russian ancestry. Uh, Do you trace, how far back do you trace your family in Russian history? And to what degree is that identity, is it preserved or insular? or to what degree is it assimilated in the diaspora in the U.S., and then contrasting the white Russian community with post-Soviet uh, immigrants. And do you see that uh, that article from Anatoly Karlin I sent you about the different, different groups of Russian-Americans?
1: Yeah. Um, the white Russians are very insular and completely sealed off from the Russian community, for the most part. They have their own Russian community, essentially, and it doesn't really... Invite in newcomers from Russia into it, so my identity is very <laughs> closely tied to uh, white Russian um, like history and upbringing and all that and my family has um, intermarried with uh, Americans, but more in the last fifteen or so years
0: you're talking about people you're related to by marriage, or is your your ancestry is hundred percent Russian?
1: My my ancestry is pretty much 100% Russian, like, there's a small admixture of a Latvian, but um, it's not a heck of a lot, but yeah, my family came over in the 40s, and uh, basically was not assimilated into American groups until, like, the year 2000 or something, so it was pretty sealed off, and my, um, there's white Russian blood in both sides of my family, even though, like, they're uh, both sides of the family are from slightly different parts of Russia, but they're both white Russians, and um, there's just a lot of family history around that, and just my identity and my family's identity is very much uh, tied into that. And even though Russians are a common uh, ancestry around the world, there's like more than 100 million, the number of white Russian expats is much, much lower. So it's kind of like everyone that left Russia at the same time, they all went to like, the same refugee camps. They all... Um, they all went to the same. Um, they all went to San Francisco for the most part. Is know, like, there
0: uh, still a community in San Francisco?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's even um, like aristocratic functions. Like, there's a ball that they have and stuff that has like every the entire white Russian scene in the entire um, country. Like the elite of that attend this, this ball, and there's um, like I attended Russian school, completed church school, and I. Um, like do the graduation with the waltz and everything so it's a lot of it's still a huge community a decent-sized community of white russians that all still just talk to each other the younger ones are mixing in a bit with america but it's still like it's possible to in san francisco in the bay area it's possible to be in communities where you can actually just speak russian to, to all the people you know and then and you don't even need to necessarily interact, like business-wise, very deeply with uh, Americans. It's kind of like how the Chinese are in uh, in California.
0: This is mostly in the Richmond District.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And with uh, f- with futurism and AI, are you interested in a specific aspect, uh, such as radical life extension or brain augmentation?
1: I'm particularly interested in the self-improving AI and the smarter-than-human AI and just the smarter-than-human element of that whole thing because I think that's the key issue is when you create something that's smarter than human, then uh, it changes everything else. So when it comes to, like, life extension, brain augmentation or anything like that, I think that those things will be achieved fairly quickly once we actually upgrade our intelligence. And um, I don't think that we're going to really... Proceed very far in them until we have smarter than human intelligence, because some of those problems, especially brain augmentation, the complexity of it is uh, overwhelming without um, assistance from uh, enhanced intelligence.
0: And uh, do you think the implementation of AI and then also genetic engineering will will challenge liberal values? The inequality of implementation, of course, will be a will be a big concern. It could exacerbate inequality. But then there's also the eugenics taboo with uh, gene editing.
1: I think that liberals, you know, liberals are just going to ban any um, serious interventions, so that we won't see any enhancement. It won't challenge. They're, they're going to see the risk that it poses to the their worldview from a distance, and then they're going to ensure that the most radical possibilities are suppressed for as long as possible. That's the way that I view it.
0: And uh, what are your thoughts on the, a future of abundance, thoughts on a uh, post-scarcity economy, and do you think uh, a fully automated luxury communism is viable?
1: <laughs> um, I think that the post-scarcity depends on certain like, political formulations being put into place that are very different than what we have now. Um, because of the amount of danger that is posed by the, the basically the engines of creation, like the um, machines that are able to create post-scarcity. They're going to be so, um, they can be used so much for warfare that this is w- one of the reasons why I got into just government in general is that the amount of government like monitoring and influence and control and also built-in controls into these systems, the amount that will, will be necessary for it not to be dangerous is is extreme, so I think that um, for the most part, first of all, I don't think that we're anywhere near post scarcity. I think it's going to be at least uh, maybe eighty to hundred years before we're at that level, just because of um, the difficulty of the technologies, their complexity, and so on. Like fully automated luxury communism, anything like that. I mean, it it's going to be dependent on AI completely to create these uh, post scarcity scenarios. And once you create AI it's, it's like you're kinda like a matrix scenario where you're creating a completely different <clears throat> organism. So it's kinda that 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 challenge of creating a different organism and dealing with it is gonna that's gonna be the salient issue. That's the number one issue. Like are we going to survive or not? That's the, the kind of issue that I care about the most.
0: Uh, are you a supporter of the UBI?
1: I'm not right now, because I think it's not uh, fiscally responsible, so, I I think that the, I'm in favor of there being direct cash payments related to the, um, the
0: the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Most of it is basically, like, pork to governments or to corporations rather than, like, a direct direct cash payouts.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the political will to do UBI is not there, really, like, Yang notwithstanding, and just the math of it is unattractive. Because if you do the math of how many trillions of dollars UBI goes into, it's like we have a huge budget deficit without UBI, you know? And then, to me, like, I see some right-wingers that seem to be doing the – they're going over into the MMT – what what, what that stands for again? Market Monetary Theory or whatever?
0: What that means is that if you – if you put money into the economy, it stimulates the economy. So the argument is that with a UBI or direct cash payouts, like, I guess they would make the case that someone who is lower income, they would spend that money and it would go right back into the economy. Or same with, even if someone's middle income, well, if uh, if you subsidize, uh, say, like a government institution or bureaucracy, then you're you're separating that from the economy. So. Different people might have different takes on it, but that's basically what that that modern monetary uh, theory. Is. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, if you look at like the devaluation of the dollar since the '50s, it's concerning, and I just think that any um, thing like UBI could cause a catastrophic um, failure of the currency. So I'm not in favor of any of the the um, kind of like socialist elements that you see emerging a lot on the right wing right now because I do believe I'm not a market monetary theorist I believe that money has value and that you can't make it out of nothing so I don't think it will just go back into the economy everything will be fine you know everyone can have endless free money and then there won't be any consequences I just don't think that's the way it works
0: with uh, concerns about uh, AI leading to neo feudalism like what are your thoughts on how to avoid these dystopian uh, worst case scenarios with AI and then just how overall thoughts on weighing the benefits versus the harm of AI and transhumanism?
1: Well, I think that the transhumanism and AI are both extremely dangerous, and um, most people don't understand the risk involved, and they don't understand the danger. But some do. You know, this fiction like the Matrix or whatever that might make, but they don't take people don't take it really seriously. So, like as far as neo feudalism, something like that. It's all going to come down to what I worked on at the Singularity Institute, which was uh, how to program AI that is beneficial and broadly so, and kind of acts like an operating system for Earth, essentially. Because that's what what it's going to be. We're creating, eventually, going to create an entity that's essentially like an operating system for Earth. So, to pre- that, that AI would be responsible for preventing that neo-feudalist dystopian scenario. So if, if we create AI that's able to do that then we'll be okay but if we don't explicitly create an AI like that or create an AI that is not so heavily in control then I think like something like neo feudalism or even more dystopian could emerge and that all just comes down to that um, friendly AI problem of how to build AI in the first place.
0: You're a Bay Area native Uh, were you involved with the Bay Area futurist scene when you lived there?
1: Oh yeah very very deeply yeah very much so. So, um... Did
0: you know uh, Anatoly Carlin?
1: Yeah, yeah, I have uh, met him in person. And we lived in, we both lived in Berkeley at the same time, around, uh... Whenever he moved to Berkeley, I guess around, like, 2016 or so. So, yeah, we both lived around Berkeley at the same time. And, yeah, I mean, I met, and the whole Bay Area Futurist scene, I was very deeply involved in it. I met everyone, and, um was just socially intertwined with it. And it was only around maybe like 2016, 2017, that I just kind of started to slowly step away from it because I just saw a lot of um, people that were just too introductory-wise and weren't focused, like, on the most serious projects, in my view.
0: What would you like to see as, as the most serious projects?
1: Well, like, for instance, um, there was a, pro- a program that, a scientific program to develop a high-throughput gene sequencing technology based on, um, uh, what do you call it, like electron microscopes, essentially, and tagging particular bases in the, um, the DNA with, like, heavy metals and then imaging those heavy metals directly so that pro- potentially one could, like, scan an entire genome in an hour or something. Like, that's the kind of project that's serious. It was funded to the tune of, like, $7 million by um founders fund and i was involved with that until it uh around till it just failed but it was serious projects like that that i was interested in still am where people are actually trying to develop new technology and not just like kind of fantasizing about immortality because there's a lot of that where it's sort of just like um you know semi-religious where people practice transhumanism as a religion and don't uh attempt to actually develop technologies and there's, there's a lot of that where people aren't trying to tackle specific projects because they don't know enough about it or whatever or that the projects that they would tackle to develop like who sometimes the people that are religious transhumanists do not develop the technologies that actually push transhumanism forward and they're just kind of observers so that's what I don't like. I just I like when transhumanists actually select some kind of uh, project or task and move it forward. So as we see Elon Musk doing that. I don't know to what extent he's a religious transhumanist. I almost met him once, but then like I went home instead of st- sticking around the office where he came by, so I just never met him.
0: Oh, are you familiar with the concept of a gray tribe, Scott Alexander's concept, in contrast with the red and blue, and uh, how politically and ideologically? uh diverse was the barrier Futurist scene
1: the um yeah I'm familiar with uh Scotts um oh thing. I t-
0: Scott Jackich? I attended one of his meetings in the uh, area oh F-
1: yeah yeah I hung out and talked with Scott Jackish like 50 to a hundred times like i I used to see him in Berkeley as well and um we would both go to the same event like constantly so he's one of the cool guys that I knew very well in the Bay Area, but, um, let's see, so what was your original question? I forgot it, sorry.
0: Oh, how ideologically diverse was it? Oh,
1: oh yeah, not at all. <laughs> it's completely u- uniform, everyone is a lemming, uh, thought-wise, everyone has just, uh, lukewarm neoliberal belief system going on. um, the Grey Tribe, it's all completely ideologically uniform. I guess you'd call it like a Reddit mentality. Um, and, and wouldn't Grey Tribe, wouldn't uh, like
0: HBD human biodiversity, fall under that umbrella?
1: Um, I mean, fall under the umbrella like in terms of that's one of the things the Grey Tribe talked about a lot. Yeah, or what?
0: yeah. I guess it's not really, it's sort of a loosely... The Grey Tribe, it, because it's not well organized, it's a smaller group, it's sometimes, like, there'll be overlap with both the Red Tribe and the Blue Tribe. So, I guess with the Barrier Futurist scene would be where the Gray Tribe and the Blue Tribe overlap, same with, uh, like, support for Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang sort of started out more Gray Tribe, and then for, obviously, electoral reasons, he joined up with the Blue Tribe.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's why, like, I always thought him as the odd man out, kind of, like, um, not appealing to rank-and-file Democrats. That's the way that I view him. Like, I think that. The Democrats viewed him like that too, kind of like as an outsider or something, because he's not like heavy, heavily enough ideologically invested in wokeness to the point that they expect out of their leaders. So he was always like the odd man out, and yeah, it just—it's so sad because the gray tribe, all it tries to do is um, appeal to the uh, like Democrat base essentially. That's all because they want to go where the power is at, and, and the places that where the gray tribe lives, like the West Coast. In particular, like Democrats and liberals hold all the power, institutional-wise and otherwise. So all they're trying to do is do their best to just, um, you know, with the Democrats, they jump, they say how high, and that's just all they're about, is trying to appease Democrats. But they aren't um, liked by Democrats in the same way that Democrats like just ideological leftists. You know, they're too, like, when they, when Democrats see, like, intellectual types or brainy types, they think racism. They think that these people are all racist, which they kind of are, and they don't have any meaningful exposure to, um, Hispanics or blacks either, the gray tribe, so.
0: I think there was a statistics that Anatoly posted, Anatoly Carlin, but it's maybe mostly white and then maybe a, maybe 20% Asian.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's what the elite of, um, the Bay Area pretty much is, is that same exact demographic breakdown, like 80% white, 20% Asian. And um, that's just a, and they fancy themselves as um, like inclusive because they're 20% Asian, you know?
0: <laughs> you grew up in San Mateo County, and then you also lived in Walnut Creek and, and Berkeley? Yeah. Are specific various suburbs uh, linked to one particular uh, industry and how insular... Are these upper class white suburbs like geographically segregated? And do you think economic elitism is a su- is a substitute for ethnocentrism, and how sustainable?
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes to like ethnically um, segregated groups, I think like the Bay Area elite is way way up there because there's no Hispanics in um, tech for the most part. They just there there aren't, and there's there's no blacks even outside of tech really that much except for uh, Oakland. So every Bay Area, um, every Bay Area suburb, every Bay Area elite community is different. They're all like just little walled of cities and um, the social networks are very difficult to penetrate for outsiders and the requirement to gain admission is tons of money. So multi-million uh, dollar homes and just being extremely wealthy, that's the only way to get in there. So. Over time, the, the most of the people that live in the outlying suburbs are connected to the area, like have been there for some time, like their parents have or their grandparents or something. So because do they you all, still
0: have like a kind of like an old wealth, you still have these like old wealth white communities that they're able to manage, they're able to maintain wealth uh, intergenerationally going back, going back pretty far and they, the same families live in the same area? Because I'm from L.A., and pretty much everything is all like new wealth.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there's nouveau riche in uh, San Francisco in particular, but that's it's kind of like the throughput of people going in and out is all happening in San Francisco. It's not happening in um, the outlying suburbs. The outlying suburbs, see, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but some people are, like around the 70s to the 80s, the land was very cheap in the Bay Area. So anyone like that bought in around that time, kind of like their economic legacy is continuing on now oh
0: yeah that's why like well this is the same in southern california too but uh like a lot of these like well-off suburbs are just all boomers
1: yeah and it's so they're all old and um a lot of the younger folks some of them do stick around and maintain the intergenerational wealth but i'd say maybe like half of them move away so it's kind of like it's very old people there mainly like if you go to San Carlos or Belmont or somewhere like that um, in San Mateo County or San Mateo, and you just look on the street, just you see a lot of old people.
0: My observation last time I was in the Bay Area is Marin County is probably like the oldest, but then the wealthier parts of uh, like Central Contra Costa, you do see more young families.
1: Oh, Central uh, I see. Yeah, yeah. You like
0: where you lived? You said you lived in in Walnut Creek. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still very old, but I, there is more. Yeah, there are more families because, um, like, the way that Walnut Creek and Concord are, are both part of the same basin, essentially. Like, Concord is where people can actually afford to buy homes who don't have a, a ton of money. So, like, the Walnut Creek demographics blend into the whole, like, Concord situation, which is kind of like a lower-class area. But cause, because it's part of the same basin, there is... Um, like, this circulation between the individuals, the people, and just, there's more young families that can afford to buy new homes in that whole, um, East Bay situation, but then when it comes to, like, the peninsula in Marin, it's completely insular, it's not like that, because there's not even any, there's no geographic connection to any poor communities from Marin, you know, like, there's one area in Marin where there's poor people live, like, it's one tiny area in, um, San Rafael or whatever, but, um, and then the bay, in the peninsula, is just like East Palo Alto, pretty much. And then, like, some parts of San Mateo aren't super, super wealthy, but for the most part, it's just, it's extremely insulated in Marin and San Mateo because they, they don't even have, there's no poor communities to be seen, you know, for the most part. There's no poor people to be seen. They just don't exist there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is this big exodus with remote work. Uh, as far as those like, areas, like, which, which areas do you see as most susceptible to, like, demographic uh, change?
1: Well, right now, like, I live in the Sunset District for, like, ten years, and while I w- was there, it was still, like, going through, through the process of becoming, a, uh, I guess you could call it, like, senoification sino- or something.
0: Silicon Valley, like, places like Cupertino went from, like, an upper-middle-class white community to uh, to mostly, mostly Asian.
1: Yeah, it's the same thing, like, in Foster City, um... Where, but with respect to Indians and Foster sees um, where Oracle is, uh, or near where Oracle is, where just the entire community went from white to Indian in like 30 years, and the same thing's happening in the Sunset District, where just I, I knew many hundreds of individuals living in San Francisco, but out of all the many hundreds of people I knew, today I'd only say like a very small handful uh, started their own families there.
0: There's like a shift in shift in where immigrants are coming from, and then you have to kind of factor in remote work, shifting around these demographic trends.
1: Yeah, I mean, remote work, for the most part, is something that is engaged in by uh, like well-established white folks, as far as I know, in the Bay Area. So they might have some freedom to move to the suburbs, but the question is... Does the pay for the remote work have enough like heft to it financially for them to, be, to stay and to live? I don't know. Like As far as the Bay Area, I think that it's kind of like they want you to be there in the office um, and be engaged, and it's not replaced by remote work for the most part, because the I think that it, it, it's in industries that aren't as crucial where remote work is possible, but in, in industries where... There's a lot of money involved, a lot of programming, and tons of venture capital money that's funding it. They, there is no the remote work is frowned upon, unless it's for like contractors or for like the lowest people, people who are lower on the, the rungs of things. Whereas anyone with any responsibility has to be there in person. That's my impression. Do you
0: see these well, uh, like wealthier white communities maintaining their communities, or do you see them as susceptible to to change uh, several decades from now?
1: I think that they're completely, um, stable, and they have some new people from immigration, but not really, like, especially Marin and, uh, the, uh, Peninsula. Like, if you, there's some article or some paper, I forget what it is, that kind of, like, projects the demographic change for the Bay Area in the next 30 years, and for the most part, like, it might involve the, um... Like minority, like particularly Hispanic community, increasing by like, to, to the tune of like five to ten percent over like twenty or thirty years. So it's kind of like, and even in San Francisco, there's no there's no projected increase in the minority community, none. So it's kind of like the the that's what, where the hypocrisy of it all comes in because the elite the limousine liberals they have a completely ethnically homogeneous except for Asians. Um, in small numbers, and they're completely uh, inculcated into white culture, the Asians that are there. But they're so homogeneous, and they're so isolated, because they have economic power, which they use to maintain their standard of living, which means ethnic homo- homo- homogeneity. But uh, they advocate policies that involve like diversification, but they're never subject.
0: Economic elitism is a substitute for ethnic exclusion, for sure. And, yeah, I see most, I mean, most of the really rapid demographic change. I mean, California basically went through its transition in the 90s. It's more in these, like, red states, places like Texas, uh, Georgia, North Carolina.
1: Yeah, I think, like, the California, the situation of California is also, like, the future of places like Texas where, um, even though, like, it's not as possible to geographically isolate yourself in Texas because there's not the, you know, like, the particular geography that. California and the Bay has, but still it's the same like model that's going to be followed where people are cre- going to create economically exclusive communities, and they're just able to, they don't have to, they can pay lip service to diversity while not having to deal with it, which is for the poorer people. The poorer people deal with the diversity, but the wealthy people completely steal themselves off and completely um, white, all white except for some Asians. But I think that, that's that's happening nationwide, actually, the whole ethnoverb situation the whole like ethnic sorting is happening nationwide so what you see in california is going to be the template for all these areas that seem diverse now but they're just they're in the process of sorting themselves out into ethnoburbs
0: yeah i I see that actually with i see like white people doing that probably in the future it will just be like they'll they'll form their own version of an ethnoburb instead of thinking of themselves as part of like the greater society
1: yeah because it's just about like the behavior, like, the personal behavior in, in terms of, like, interactions and conversations and um, just the way that people interact with one another, like, that becomes codified into a certain, like, etiquette, set of etiquette, and a certain way of operating, and Californians are, are completely separate from, like, New Yorkers or any other Easterners when it comes to that. I'm sure you're familiar with that phenomenon. Where oh, yeah, for like, sure.
0: But also, like, the, the sort of, like, the dream of the left is everyone blending together as, like, one human race but i see the actually the opposite happening it's more like a big increase in a sort of mating like you will see a lot of a lot of white men marrying asian women who maybe meet in university and the same sort of economic niche so you see that happening but they have shared kind of cultural values and then they'll raise their kids in those values but a sort of mating that's like the trend
1: exactly and the number one like um, like intelligence is one of the number one things that people look for in a spouse and um Money obviously, so you can't make a ton of money unless you like you have a certain kind of um, way of doing things. And the elite Californian whites are similar to the elite Chinese in the way that they uh, interact and operate, and like what they're interested in and what they consider acceptable, and all that stuff. The elite Chinese and the elite California whites are very in accord with a lot of that, so that's why they obviously intermarry.
0: Uh, Ed Dutton. He he had a talk about his his new book, like an HBD type book, and he was saying that there, like in Hawaii, there's a lot of intermarriage. But he was saying like the Japanese, there's just something about the white people in Hawaii, in the Japanese community, they're very, very compatible. So like mixing does happen, but it creates, it creates kind of new tribal identities, and so sort of this this dream of the left of like a blended humanity, and then it's maybe yeah. the worst. It's a dystopian vision for some people on the right, but it's just not going to happen.
1: What? Oh, the um. Yeah, mixing into one race. Yeah, yeah. obviously, it's not happening. Yeah, because the, you can't fake the you can't fake income. You know, so it's like people don't want to marry down. So why would they diversify when the people you know of a swarthy complexion don't make enough money? That's the way that, that they look at it.
0: What made you leave California? Cause where you live was pretty nice. Was this you were in Berkeley for a while, which is more more urban, and then you moved out to the suburbs? Was it economic reasons?
1: Yeah, it's economic reasons because of raising a family, basically, like it's not I, there was no future for um, for a family for me in my view in the Bay Area, and just it's all played out the whole Bay Area, and you can't make money there unless you're extremely highly educated. I dropped out of college, and I'm happy with that decision, and I just didn't want to jump through the various hoops that you need to get into that wealthy California niche. So, yeah, I just wanted to see the uh, other parts of the country. And, uh, I, just, I got extremely sick of California because it's so ideologically uniform. And it's so, so liberal. And I, that and economic reasons, I was just completely sick of, uh, the Bay area by the time I left and, uh, places like the sunset where I grew up, they, they're completely changed. You know, it's just, there, there are so many Chinese there, and it's not the community that it was, and all. Like I think it was um, on your show with Peter Nimitz, You said like that California whites are the most uh, individualistic or socially atomized people. Oh yeah, on the planet, you know, and it's just that whole that goes completely against you know all my desires for what I want out of life. And uh, when I moved, as soon as I moved out of California, I basically moved to an area that's just kind of like more normal America. I like it so much more than uh, the whole California, like, mind programming situation. It's just the amount of conformity that is demanded in California ideologically is just too much for me.
0: So you were in Florida and in Idaho?
1: Uh, no, I've never – I'm not living in Idaho yet. I've only just visited. I just plan to move there eventually. But before I go to Idaho, I'm just going to move to different parts of the east and midwest just to uh, kind of – Meet different people and just experience different parts of the country.
0: I mean, Florida, uh, I can see that for the quality of life, but it's just all kind of flat. Like the one, like where you are, even in the Bay Area, like you, even though it's urban, you do have all these uh, mountain areas you can hike. Even your, I know, yeah. Walnut Creek. Uh, I mean, Berkeley is sort of like the center. It's associated with the most extreme woke left, but the one thing I do really like about it is just one of the few places where you have the real contrast between urbanism. But just going a little bit of inland from Berkeley into like Tilden Park, and then further out to, uh, into Contra Costa, you have you still have so much like wilderness, and you don't really get that same contrast in LA.
1: No, yeah, I don't know how people can stand LA. If they go to San Gabriel Mountains or whatever. Would you would you say that is that where people go?
0: Yeah, but it's it's not really comparable. I guess the Santa the Santa Monica Mountains, going to the hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains near Malibu and the Pacific Palisades, would be the equivalent of going from like the from Berkeley to go for a hike in Tilden Park or or Briones or Mount Diablo, like those kind of places. That's yeah, of
1: yeah, I've been all, to all those places many times. Like I love Briones, I love um, Tilden, and um, I've hiked like every single hill in the Bay Area. and I know many of the unique, like, views that most people aren't familiar with, like, especially in, um, uh, Belmont and San Carlos, and, um, I just, I love the nature so much, the mi- but The microclimates, people. too. Yeah, microclimates, and just, especially, like, Burlingame, where I'm from, it's kind of like that, there's a, um, Near Crystal Springs Reservoir, there's like a really decent-sized hill range which oh, completely I think, blocks. Uh, I
0: haven't I haven't hiked there, but I do notice whenever I take the highway to SF, I do see that reservoir from the from the highway.
1: Yeah, I'm lo- uh, that's one of my favorite places to hike, and uh, my parents have been hiking there since like the '70s. And um, the way that like, there's a mountain range there blocks the cold air f- from the ocean from uh, going into San Mateo County. So it's like, that's why Burlingame and Redwood City have the perfect climates, because they have that California warmth, but a problem with a lot of the California coast is that it's incredibly cold and foggy, you even see that all the way up in Eureka and places like that, not L.A., but anywhere like even, Central California Santa going north. in
0: L.A. can get fogged in in the, in, the, in like, June, early summer.
1: It can, okay, Yeah. But, you know, like how, um, what is it, Walt Whitman or whoever said, like, the coldest... Mark Twain, um, yeah. Mark cold, Twain, the coldest, okay. Uh,
0: the coldest winter was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it's kind of like that. That's why the anyone with a lot of money is trying to move into the uh, side of Marin or um, the Peninsula, because it has it doesn't have that uh, cold fog going on.
0: Uh, do you have any thoughts on the, the current political situation, Uh uh, thoughts on why you initially supported Trump and I mean now a lot of a lot of people in our sphere are extremely critical of him and what happened towards the end of uh, just the role he played in contributing like whether he contributed to a lot of this like civil unrest and then just how ridiculous it is like he just like all these pardons he gave to rappers and white collar criminals but nothing really like anti-establishment and uh Just overall, like, Trump's legacy, thoughts on the current political situation and the
1: election of Biden? I'm completely thrilled by the election of Biden, because I didn't think it was going to happen. So um, the fact that it did, I couldn't be happier. And um, that's for, like, accelerationist reasons for the most part, because it's the whole, like, complacency that was created by Trump that we get so tired of. And also the critiques that we started posing of Trump, like, maybe a year or so into his term, all of them... Came true, you know. All the accusations that we leveled at him have all been proven and demonstrated, and we were right. Yeah, I would actually say
0: he's made things worse because uh, positions that anything to do with nationalism, populism, immigration restriction are associated associated with uh, with uh, Trump and just all that nonsense. All these people who are carrying water for him and all the all the nonsense about about trusting the plan. And uh, yeah, it's sort of the worst, yeah, it's the worst of both worlds because Trump is, uh, had fairly, fairly conventional conservative, normie conservative policies, but now there's this, with the crackdown, it's being treated like, being a Trump supporter is like the equivalent of being like a neo-Nazi. It's the worst Yeah, of I mean, worlds.
1: he did shift the overton window initially, but he didn't build that much new wall. Like, the main thing I wanted out of him was wall. And he couldn't, you know, do that, and he didn't push hard enough in the first two years. So it's like, the one thing that, the one reason why I mainly supported him was for the wall, but that just it never happened.
0: Like the immigration issue, it seems to be kind of like a losing losing battle. But with Biden, yeah, I do think it's better. Like it's better to have like a clear, a clear idea of like this neoliberal opposition rather than dealing with like the bullshit under Trump.
1: Yeah, and just the white Americans are way too fat and happy, and um, they aren't doing anything to take control or better their own situation, and um, when Trump just allows them all to be completely lazy, because then he's the one that's going to supposedly do everything, but he hasn't done anything, and this is going to continue to be a problem, this Trump thing, like, he's going to continue to have supporters and proxies and his daughter, and it's going to go on and on and on, because he... he he has so many supporters, and they're going to keep supporting him. Because it seems like it's a call
0: to personality. I like, They're almost like worshipping Trump, and it just feels like there's these different kind of religious revivals, like same with the woke politics, but it's more like a call to personality behind Trump than part of any kind of greater populist nationalist movement.
1: Yeah, completely. And also it just allows people to buy into democracy and um, believe that their vote matters. And you just, you know... He plugs people back into the system again, and uh, that's really what the legacy of Trump is going to be, where the right wing thinks that they can do anything through the electoral system, but I hope that Biden and Kamala will disabuse everyone of those ideas by uh, cracking down on the capital protester type people and uh, like that. So I'm just hoping that Biden and Kamala go too far. And uh, spur
0: a backlash. Yeah, there could be like a yeah, as opposed to it generally, does seem like the kind of frog in the boiling pot theory. But like, how far, how far do you see Biden and, and Kamala Harris pushing?
1: You know, I'm just hopeful that they push really far, but I don't believe they'll be that easy. So I'm cautious about it because I think at heart, Biden is a um, neoliberal centrist, obviously. You know, he was friends with all the racist senators. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he's not, but he's so old, and kind of. You know, I don't know to what extent. Like his, he doesn't have a cult of personality like Trump does, and um, I don't think that he's as strong and assertive of an independent decision maker as. So I think that he might be controlled by Kamala, and that's why I'm hoping.
0: Yeah, but I agree with you, Biden. I mean, Biden's pretty moderate, but the forces like, things like extreme wokeness and anti-whiteness are so strong.
1: Yeah, like, I'm, I have been satisfied by his cabinet uh, choices, for the most part, because it seems like he's throwing uh, red meat to the far left, a little bit, but when it comes down to it, like, reviewing his executive orders, he's already done, like, 30 executive orders, and I read them all, like, you know, what they do, whatever, and he immediately reneged on abolishing student loan debt, you know?
0: Oh, yeah, even, like, he's he's going to put, like, Tubman on the 20, but he's not going to do the 2000. Does that, I mean, that's peak, like, neoliberalism. But, yeah, I think it's pretty much, like, standard kind of neoliberal uh, policies. So you'd say overall you identify more, you have a more aristocratic rather than a populist uh, outlook?
1: Yeah, completely. So the whole like uh, right populism thing is like they really kind of push it um on the far right right now because of the money you know the two thousand dollars that we're supposed to be owed or whatever but i don't think that that's going to enable like a movement into right populism because i think it's just the whole like getting money from the government thing is just temporary and and contingent on the pandemic so the i just don't the i don't think that the economic policies of right populism make financial sense, and I don't think that they're implementable either. I think that they would cause uh, economic collapse if they were implemented, and also that it won't be possible because there's too much dependence on big business in America, the way that it's been built up. You can't just make it socialist. You can't just change it and make it more socialist. So I don't think – because it it doesn't respond that way. All the the economic systems are uh, based on cutthroat capitalism will continue to be, and you can't social socialize that. It's too, without, like, revolution, but the left isn't going to stage one. So it's just the, I think the right populism, economic thing, is just a symptom of the uh, moment of opportunity created by the pandemic. And while people are going to continue to keep pushing it, like Huey Long, and uh, the whole Huey Long thing, you know, like Tucker mentioned Huey Long or whatever, I don't think that it's going to get traction, so I'm not really concerned about it in the long term. I don't think it's even worth fighting against for the most part. I just think that it should, we should let it play out, and then it'll uh, just go back to normal.
0: I mean, with the big crackdown online on, against the right, what are your thoughts on the viability of alt-tech?
1: Of alt-tech?
0: Yeah, alt-tech. Oh, I,
1: I think that alt-tech is doing great right now because of um, the Twitter crackdown, you know? So we're seeing a lot of development in that space. And uh, things like uh, Brave, you know, the browser was successful. And we're, that's one area where there is continued motion and continued investment is in this whole alt tech thing. And I don't think the crackdown is going to be able to stop it. So the most like these crackdowns for the most part tend to be performative and they don't actually stop people from doing what they're going to do. That's my impression of them.
0: I mean, right now, regarding like what Biden Representing more kind of a, he represents more like a neoliberal centrism rather than the far left, but deplatforming uh, is, is now now Antifa and prominent leftists are being deplatformed, suspended from social media, and you kind of see these two forces like what what happened last year, last summer with the civil unrest, like you have Black Lives Matter versus Antifa like the end of an alliance, and then one side. Yeah is uh, one side, like, the kind of radical leftists who want to dismantle capitalism and defund the police, they're radically anti-American, and then the other side who basically wants to maintain the current system, but with more racial quota set aside?
1: Yeah, like, when it comes to the whole racial equity, um, like, m- movement or motion from Biden, it's going to be purely performative.
0: I think he'll do a lot in that, but it will be basically, like, neoliberalism plus a aff- more affirmative action but nothing, yeah, nothing like radically leftist.
1: No, yeah, exactly. So it's like the there won't be a um, like enemy for all, us all to unite against. Like um, even Obama was a better enemy. So if that's why like the progress on the right is going to be slow because there is no enemy yet to really unite against, and no one is afraid of um, socialism.
0: I'm neither a fan of Obama nor did I ever have like Obama derangement syndrome. I think he was a pretty pretty generic. Neoliberal, even if you look at like Immigration crackdowns uh, There were more deportations I don't think he was that extreme as how like The right were portraying him at the time But it would be interesting To see like Kamala Harris does seem She, I mean she does seem to be Like pretty radically anti-white I would say far more than Obama was
1: Yeah, I think like The way that she is So anti-white is creating a moment of opportunity For uh, our side And the way that things are playing out Towards um, ethnic des- segregation or separation, so I think it's going to do a lot of good in terms of um, driving that. Especially like if they do anything w- with regard to housing, any like um, housing related initiatives. Like Obama at one point, like had a huge database where he was trying to break down the, the ethnic uh, divisions of suburbs. So that
0: he- I don't think he actually implemented that, but that was that was no. an idea. But that would. That would kind of shake things up because you have all these kind of upper middle class white liberal suburbanites who are able to sort of benefit from the status quo. That would sort of that would sort of force them to challenge their positions.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, but the, you know, right now they don't. They they they're so in, uh, they're so powerful and uh, separated from uh, any change related to like equity or racial equity coming from the government.
0: Looking at the nation as a whole and this like extreme polarization, I don't really see like collapse theory because if you look back at history, like Rome took uh, at least two centuries to fall. It's more kind of just feels like a kind of gradual, gradual stagnation. So the U.S. will exist as a political and economic zone, but I think what is dying out is sort of Americanism as an idea of being. People identifying as America, like the myth, the myth of America being undermined by extreme polarization, and uh, you're seeing a lot of like your European Americans identifying as like a stateless people.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it's changing a little bit slowly, step by step, but yeah, um, I don't know. You know, it depends. It's all also dependent. I think the pandemic and any like risk, any like. Um, Anything that shows the reality of scarcity or creates um, challenges, all anything like that makes people more tribalistic. So that is what we you are seeing with some <clears throat> some liberals are actually like people vote for Trump even in uh, San Francisco, you know, like and people vote for Trump in LA too. Like it might be just fifteen percent or twenty percent, but it's still there's people there even in the you know the citadels of progressivism that uh, are conservative or right-wing.
0: Even if, uh, like, I, I, I think I showed you the article I wrote at UNS, uh, the areas that
1: rejected affirmative action in uh, California, yeah.
0: LA, and the Bay Area, but even a lot of areas that voted for Biden, obviously Asian areas, but a lot of upper-middle, white upper-middle-class suburbs, too.
1: Yeah, tons, exactly. And it's that, like, um, nuance that me and you understand as Californians, where it's not, like, California's like, all communists. Oh, yeah, like, and, when I
0: the My own articles, like, I, I didn't really get... One of the comments is, like, I don't... Like, they're all California shit libs, like, I don't care about... There's no, like, no Yeah,
1: yeah the people aren't interested in, like, breaking it down, but, you know, when, it, when it, it comes to, like, performance art of equity, Californians love that, but when it comes to their pocketbook, then suddenly the attitude changes.
0: Yeah, like, I did notice a correlation between uh, areas that were more family-oriented... And, uh, and opposing affirmative action, even if they're Democrats.
1: Yeah, and there's people that might like give speeches about diversity to their colleagues, but then go to the voting booth and vote against affirmative action. Oh
0: yeah, for sure. And even I think with like there are like true believers in uh, woke in wokeness, but I think a lot, I mean a lot of the ultra wealthy ha- actually have more right wing values in a sense, they're thinking in terms of passing down like a, a birthright to their descendants.
1: Yeah, and they all view the whole like left-wing politics as a tool to accomplish their goals. Yeah, it's for instrumental. Sure.
0: And I think I'd say, like among corporate CEOs, like there's probably there's probably are like the true believers, and then those who are just more cynical, just going along with it because it's safer for business.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the economic strategy of diversity is to basically want to be able to use the skills of high IQ people from any culture. Like, that's what Google is, right? Like, they have high IQ Indians, high IQ Chinese, high IQ white people, and so on. So it's good for business to be able to accept those people from the whole globe. So all the best computer scientists on the globe, whatever their race, can contribute to help making money for Google. You know? So, but then that's where the diversity stops. It does not extend to blacks or Hispanics.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Merit-based immigration... They're not serious about any kind of like redistribution of wealth to these like lower to the like the lower income minority communities, or like even with the affirmative action, it's more symbolic if it's giving a job to someone who's already made it into the middle class. But they're not serious about investing into the poor, like large, large amounts of money that will impact the elite's pocketbook.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if you just look like at the wealth inequality in the Bay Area of like um. Like, downtown San Jose versus downtown Walnut Creek are completely, like, different planets.
0: The geographic barriers, like, with the the bay and the and the mountains and hills make it more extreme than L.A. even, because L.A., everything, like, if you go from Beverly Hills to, to East L.A., it's all in one basin.
1: Exactly, and also that's why, like, someone like me, when I go to L.A., like, I find it to be... Um, like, really kind of, like, dirty, I guess you could say, like, rough and dirty, because it's all that one same basin.
0: LA has, like, places, like, further at Orange County and Ventura, but it's it's much more geographically distanced, because Oakland and Walnut Creek feel totally different, but they're relatively close. Like, for LA, you'd have to yeah. drive pretty far from from Central LA to to, say, like, Thousand Oaks or Orange County.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, that's why the Bay Area League can have their cake and eat it, too, is because they have that economic uh, separation going.
0: Yeah, same with uh, school districts. L.A. All of L.A. is in one one school district, L.A. Unified, and the uh-huh. Bay Area is broken up into a bunch of smaller school districts, so that, that matters, too. And then you, that gets into the whole... Like, that's a big obsession with the woke left is diversifying public schools.
1: Yeah, but then... Um, When you live like in even like North Berkeley or somewhere, you don't have to deal with uh, diversification of your public school because it's kind of like the people that are really diverse don't have the money to go to the schools that are really nice.
0: I mean, my thoughts on the future of the United States uh, politically is uh, you'll have one side, which is the more the establishment position of uh, it will be a kind of version of civic nationalism based on an American imperialism based on liber- liberalism and uh, the loyalty to institutions the, the state corporations' wokeness and then the opposition will probably be some kind of neotribal pluralism that is friendlier maybe towards a kind of decentralized version of uh, socialism
1: hmm yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's still many um, tribalistic people that aren't socialistic at all, because, like, Trump supporters in particular, some of them do take, like, the anti-socialism thing fairly seriously. I think, like, that it's going to be more like the red states are actually unifying around their own separate identity.
0: Yeah, just a kind of overall, overall decline in trust of institutions, uh, building up community social capital, that providing people's economic needs, that will be like a change in thinking just because uh, the main institutions are, uh, they're not working for as many, many people. But I think, I think like if there is like a massive, uh, if massive numbers of like Trump supporters are, are losing their jobs for their views, if that happens in a large mass, then that would actually change, change the mindset. But there's generally still a mentality. I mean, it hasn't really gotten to this point where, but there's still a mentality where people's need economic needs are provided for by either the state or by large corporations.
1: Yeah, for the most part. But um the whole like cracking down on Trump supporters thing it might make it so that parallel institutions will be created. But um, we're not there yet. And that's
0: the thing with like pushing, I think if they push so hard that would happen, but I don't really see I see these kind of, like, we had, after the Capitol Hill riots, there was a wave of deplatforming, and then kind of things calmed down a bit, then going back to basically the status quo of the Frog in the Bowling Pan.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know of anyone who has been investigated as a result of the Capitol thing. I think, like, it's mainly limited to the people that went in the building. I think there was one charge or something that was, I think they they put up one charge against one guy who was outside the building thus far, so that's where they're at now with the whole capital thing. It's like they're not doing a broad crackdown like how the you know the KGB or, and the Soviets or whatever. Yeah, would have done. I think
0: you're right. I do think uh, like a lot of Trump supporters have a bit of a martyr, a martyr complex, where they think that they're all going to be thrown around. Like they literally think they're going to be thrown into gulags. But I think. Will happen. Yeah. I happen think the people involved with the riots like many of them are being are being prosecuted and people openly who openly and promoted it have been deplatformed but i don't i think trump supporters exaggerate like the degree that there this massive uh they probably exa- exaggerate how bad it will be i think i think it will probably just yeah. go back to the kind of like the the gradual decline the frog in the boiling pan theory.
1: Yeah, it's going to be like the Obama years again, for yeah. the most part, as far as... Could and well um, the, Yeah, all the people that uh, riled up the crowd, like Nick and um, Alex Jones and Ali Alexander, none of them are going to um, face any charges.
0: Do you, you think that just the people who engaged in actual violence are going to prison?
1: Yeah, like anyone that set foot within the Capitol, sure. And they're all documented, too. So, you know... It doesn't even require like deep investigation. Just there's a stream really that has everyone people, on yeah, it. Yeah, the
0: people who film themselves, like in the office, in the politicians' offices. Yeah, those people for sure. Yeah,
1: and even them, like Baked Alaska or whatever. I think he's going to get like a slap on the wrist.
0: A lot. I mean, a lot of it also depends on on how how the economy is impacted by COVID. If there'll be a kind of recovery and we'll go back to. I mean, we're not going to see a booming economy, of course, but we could just see. Uh, an economic recovery and just a continuation of stagnation and, uh, and greater income inequality. basically a re- continuation of the 2010s. but uh, I'm not really sure if we're gonna see like a real a real full-on economic crash.
1: Yeah, no, because especially like with the way that the fundamentals were doing so well before COVID, like, it kind of surprised me that the economy was going so well at that time because it seemed like we there is a slow decline. And I thought, you know, maybe there won't be prosperity again and there'll be 2% max GDP growth per year um, going forward. But now, like, I really don't know because the economy was doing so well, almost full employment before uh, COVID, that um, maybe like uh, 3 4 5% GDP growth is possible like several years down the road. But I think the economic consequences from COVID are going to last for several years.
0: You have a book uh Idaho Project so is this advocating you talk about is this basically enclavism building up uh, enclaves or economically economically resilient in high trust communities
1: Yeah I think that that um the rise in ethnoburbs essentially is like a more mild version of what I talk about in the book yeah, uh, so, people okay. are doing doing that like on their own without you know me encouraging them
0: I mean, I see the future is, uh, you, I mean, you have kind of like Americanism and then you have, you also have people who talk about like building, building new countries from scratch, which is pretty, I mean, that's totally unrealistic and I don't think it's, I don't think it's great optics either. I just see the future is basically emulating the model of like immigrant, immigrant on clays or F no That's the future. And it could be in a rural area, or it could be in the suburb of a major metro.
1: Yeah, but um, there's certain like needs, legally wise, that white Americans will have to push for in order to um, like say, for instance, like if the Obama housing thing actually like kicked in for real, then white Americans would need to use legal means to defend themselves. But they wouldn't. Um, so you know, they might pass laws. They wouldn't be overtly racial oriented laws, but it would be economic laws that have the same consequences. That basically prevent them from um, being subject to uh, like forced integration.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that the, the mainstream right has been really thinking in those terms. They're mostly just thinking in terms of Americanism.
1: Yeah. I, that's why like, I'm encouraging people to think more like, along the lines of separate things. But even if not its own country, just more legal independence, and um, I'm hoping like that the, the crackdown against Trump types is going to help facilitate that.
0: Very well could be, but it depends like how far it goes. I think like as ha- what happens in the past. I think was sent with with uh, crackdowns, it goes in these waves, and then things kind of calm back and go back to the status quo. Uh, we're at the end of the show, uh, Mike. Do you have any projects, upcoming projects that you want to plug, or any other? or a website
1: uh yeah i'm gonna announce that i'm uh almost done with a book on alt-right it's like 350 or so pages and i'm almost just wrapping it up so just stay tuned for that and um i go into almost every major issue related to the alt-right and just a little bit of the history of how it got started and kind of just creating a work that just sums up my view of the formation of the alt-right and how that happened and how it's continuing.
0: And do you have a website?
1: Not right now, no. don't have a website at the moment. I will eventually. It'll be cr- uh, connected to the book when the book is announced.
0: Uh, Mike and Nissimov, it's been an excellent show, and thanks for being on.
1: All right. Thank you, Robert.